Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. I'm with Wade Johnson. My name's Mike Berg, and we're here at Wisconsin Lutheran College, and we're doing a series of what we call Winging It's uh, on the life of Luther. And this is our seventh little um, episode, which are about 30 to 45 minutes long. And we started at the beginning of Luther's life and set the stage for his birth in, in 1483. And then we've kind of just gone piece by piece. And right now, uh, we're going to talk today about Luther's trip to Rome in 1510. So Martin Luther has um, already become a, uh, an Augustinian friar. He is studying at the University of Wittenberg. He has already taught there on Aristotle's Ethics in 1508. Um, and he is sent by um, Staupitz, and we'll introduce him in a little bit, uh, to Rome on Augustinian business. He's and sent, well, he's, oh, excuse he's me, sent he to was Wittenberg a, by Staupitz yeah, to so, teach, yeah. So, and then he, uh, excuse me, Luther is sent by the Augustinian brothers with um, a negotiator who's going to go to Rome and um, try to deal with the head of the Augustinians and the whole church uh, with a, a little controversy that was going on in Germany. And, and we play it as a little controversy, but it actually has some ramifications of why maybe Luther uh, is um, a little bit more apt and close, apt to listen to and closer to Staupitz and uh, permanently in Wittenberg. And so obviously this is, is a big deal historically, even if the details seem to us a little bit small. So, um, Wade, I'll kick it over to you and anything you want to say just in general about the trip of Rome and before we get maybe into a little bit of the history of it. Yeah, maybe I can set the stage a little bit with what was going on among the Augustinians. Um, you had at this time, and really before this time too, the, the vitality of the, the greater church, the church as a whole, was often seen through the lens of the observance, the holiness of the monks. Um, this was supposed to be the spiritual A team, the dream team, uh, the people who were not only doing works uh, that would enable them to be saved, but would abound over for others. And so you would oftentimes have reform movements uh, or reform monasteries even founded, I think, Cluny and the Cistercians, would be two that are rather famous uh, in, in the history before this. And the Augustinians, <coughs> excuse me, were no different. And you had Erfurt was as one of the leading observant Augustinian monasteries, meaning they wanted to keep the rules and they wanted to keep them well. Uh, they had been, become monks to be fastidious. You had other uh, provincial monasteries that this is not that they didn't care about the rules or that they wanted to be lazy monks, but they were not uh, strict to the extent that the observants were. I believe, Mike, these are sometimes called the conventuals. Does that sound yeah. sound right? And there had been tensions about, well, what do you do with these different Augustinian uh, monasteries, these gatherings of—and we we're going to say monks, although Luther was a friar, but monk is kind of the overarching term. How, how are you going to govern them all, and— are you going to try to get them to the same page? And if you're going to try to get them to the same page, there's one of two ways it goes. The observants become less observant, so to speak, or the non-observants become more observant. And uh, Staupitz, who is going to be um, very important for Luther later, and we're, we're th hoping to maybe do a whole session on Staupitz, um, but Johannes von Staupitz was elected the head of 
and I'm trying to simplify the terms here for what we would use, but the head of, the leader of the Augustinian order in Germany. And so he is going to try to make everyone more observant, but his route for doing that is going to be to bring everyone into the observance, to unify um, under the observant monastery, so to speak. You would think that the observants would think this is great and want to go along with it, but they, looking at history, were fearful that while this may be the goal to make everyone more observant, that what would really happen in the end is that everyone would be somewhat dragged down, uh, would become less observant through this. And so you had, I believe it was seven of the monasteries that are going to object to this. Nuremberg is an important one, Um, but Erfurt, for our purposes, is where Luther is. And they're going to try to fight against this taking place. And so um, you have one N-A-T-H-I-N, one man at Erfurt who's very outspoken, Nathan, who is going to oppose this, but he's too old to go to Rome. Uh, It seems at this point he and Luther are friends, although later it will appear that Nathan will never get over Luther's taking Staupert's side when he comes back. But uh, Luther, being younger, healthy, is going to go with another Augustinian uh, friar. We don't know the name of this other one, but usually this was common. You would travel in pairs. Um, It was safer. It would help you avoid temptation. Uh, It it was just normal practice. And he's going to make this trip to Rome. And they're going to go to Rome to try to appeal against Staupitz um, to try to keep, the easiest way to say it maybe is the independence of the observant monasteries, especially they're concerned with with Erfurt. Um, But Nuremberg will be the other big player in this. And so Luther is going to make this trip to Rome uh, against Staupitz, which will be important for when we get to Staupitz later, to try to keep the strict observance in place in Erfurt. And that is important for us understanding, too, is that Luther then entered a monastery and tries to advocate for a monastery that wants to be very observant, that wants to be strict in its uh, piety. And this says something about what Luther saw, um, the goal, the point of being a friar to be, a monk to be. We'll use that as an overarching term once again. This was not something that was just to be a life of ease or study, but he wants the rigors, and he's he's going to go then on behalf of his brothers to appeal to Rome. And maybe there, lest it be too much of my voice, Mike, maybe you can now jump a little bit into why it's important that he's going to Rome, uh, the trip to Rome, anything that stands out in that regard. Sure, and he it seems that he's not the negotiator. He's just kind of the guy that's going to be—he's the second man. Um, uh, to travel, a travel companion. Although he is taking a risk in doing this. So this shows already early on Luther's willing to take some risk against authority, Absolutely. which will be important for later. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is, so he gets to Rome, and probably personally the bigger trip to Rome, and, and, and a lot of biographies are going to skip over kind of the details of the Augustinian squabble. The big deal for him is he's going to come and see Rome and say, hail, holy Rome, this is this great, you know, he's going to think this is going to be a great um, thing. And and he is doing his um, Augustinian daily stuff that he would have done in the monastery that he stayed in in Rome. He's also going to do, try to get an audience with the head of the Augustinians. But he also sees this as a pilgrimage, a religious thing. And so in his quote-unquote spare time during this, I think maybe he was there a month, he is going to do all of the things that uh, um, a tourist pilgrimage person would do in Rome at that time. 
and he is going to be taken back by the the lack of sincerity um, with a lot of the religious people in Rome. He's going to be taken aback by maybe a little bit of the open debauchery of Rome, and and you see not necessarily that he goes. What's interesting to me is that he doesn't necessarily okay. The Roman Catholic Church is is absolutely corrupt because of their immorality, and so that's it. But rather, he becomes more of a churchman in in the fact that he ends up backing off of Staupitz and even backing Staupitz, um, who is the head of the Augustinians uh, of the, the in in Germany. And the reason for that, I think, is is the head of the Augustinians in Rome certainly was a type of a reformer. Probably would have loved that everybody would in his order would have been observant, but. He doesn't even give Luther and his companion a hearing, if I have that correctly. And the reason for that is he's trying to get everybody on the same page. He thinks that's the best way to reform in the in the Roman Catholic Church. We have to understand that there was a lot of people very much concerned with uh, a reformation in the church. You had the Renaissance popes who, who are um, the opposite of pious. Um, you have a, a lot of obvious debauchery. You have a lot of, of obvious simony, the selling of, um, of, of, of positions within the Roman Catholic Church. There is a desire to reform, but it could, be, it could be pushed back by those who don't want reform. But it also could be, you know, all the people that want to reform can have their own different little opinions about how to reform the church. And so there was a sense of trying to keep things together. And so Luther loses that battle, right? And yet he comes back and feels like, okay, I'm going to be a good churchman, right? I'm going to follow the rules. Rome said, don't, and so I'm not going to. And so I find it fascinating that he really could have come out of Rome less as a good churchman, but he comes up even, like you said, maybe even more Roman Catholic. Oh, there was a great line of, he came with onions and he left with garlic, right? He was, yeah. <laughs> um, he, he didn't, he didn't really change much in that certain, when it came to his, his, his piety towards the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. And yet there's some doubt that creeps in and he certainly is taken aback by, um, um, by the, what's the right word here? Maybe the uh, disrespect towards the altar, disrespect towards um, worship in the mass that he saw amongst the priests in that time. And it's only later looking back that he can say, oh, what a cesspool or what I, you know, I I saw that and and now I know how bad it really was. And to be fair too, some of the biographers will point out he would have noticed the same behavior largely of what he saw among the Italian priests if he had had more contact with the German mass priests as well. There were priests whose job it was um, to just say an inordinate number of masses for people in purgatory. Uh, Other pilgrimage sites probably would have been similar outside of Italy too. Uh, It wasn't uncommon, and Luther will realize this later, to have just private masses said extremely quickly and without the great sense of decorum or reverence. Yeah, you know, you wonder even if he's just kind of disappointed in, in Rome in general. Like, these are supposed to be more sophisticated than us. <laughs> you know, these people are supposed to have it better. They're supposed to be smarter. They're supposed to be more pious. This is Rome. This isn't this isn't backwater, you know, Germany. This is Rome. And maybe just a disappointment overall in 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 the whole in the whole trip. And yet it, I think I think it's a 
you know, what do I know? But I think it's, it's, it's an, it's a real important turning point for Luther too. Uh, it's the, it's really the only time that he travels out of Germany. Um, he was not a, a very well-traveled person. He, he was often lots of little trips doing business and stuff like that. But because of the, um, um, you know, his, his excommunication, he's not uh, able to travel like someone like Erasmus or something like that, but he's bogged down with work. And so this big travel move is a big deal, just like it's, it's big for us if we go and see a different culture, um, especially when we've heard so much about and then to see it in real life, we have some of our bubbles bursted, but we also uh, have different nuances and new insights. So Luther goes there, and he's doing these pilgrimages, and um, he's going to try to—maybe we should talk about saying a Mass. He tries to—he waits a very long time to say a, a Mass, and he, when he finally gets up there, he's trying to do it very deliberately and thoughtfully, and the— and uh, the other priest or pasa pasa, there get a move on. We got to get going. We got to say our masses. We got to get these things done. And um, taken aback by that, he even I don't know if he heard this verbatim or if he just heard about this. But uh, some people making fun of the words of institution. You know, you are you are bread and bread, bread you will, you will remain. remain. Um, that there was unbelieving priests there. Um, you can think of also just kind of the sanitary. Uh, situations in Rome were, were, were pretty bleak at that time. You didn't have great plumbing and stuff like that. Um, it was said, I think, in one of the biographies that uh, uh, in, in certain situations it was not wise for a husband to let their wives or daughters out unescorted, um, that uh, prostitution was a huge deal, um, that you were, you, were considered, you were considered pretty pious if you limited yourself to the female prostitutes stuff like that and so really as bad as germany was and luther does not um does not hold back his criticism of the of the sins of, of the germans he comes to rome and goes wow they really they really can do it well there and it's important to remember with with rome as well that it is uh now first of all as as mike mentioned somewhat it is it has fallen somewhat in disrepair this is not rome at its peak although uh, Schilling has a great line that underneath the scaffolding was the glory of Renaissance Rome. It, he, Luther is there at a very happening time. Uh, Michelangelo is working. This is when the Renaissance popes are really revitalizing Rome. Um, but there's a lot of ruins, and, and Luther even kind of attributes these ruins, right, to paganism, and right this, this shows how hollow paganism was. Uh, there were some sewage issues. The aqueducts, right, are very old. Many of them, they're still trying to use what's built by the the Romans. Um, but you do have people coming from all over the world, and you do have uh, the temptation uh, to gain wealth through ecclesiastical office. That's everywhere in Europe, exacerbated, right, as you're now in the heart of Western Christendom. But think of a port city still today. You know, it's kind of no. People will talk about, well, you, you go into a port city and you can find about anything you want. So you, you have the contrast of that, of being somewhere that has pilgrims coming from everywhere, that has people coming from everywhere because you can make a buck on the pilgrims too, so not everybody's coming for the holiest reasons. Uh, but the contrast of that with it being a, the religious capital um, of most of, of Europe at this time. So to be somewhat uh, fair with that, I think— uh, It's a big city. Right. It's a big city. It's going to have everything, good, bad, and ugly. 
But if we think of Rome at this time, Rome we think is about 50,000 people at the at this time, which is one of the bigger cities that Luther would have been in. Florence, uh, I believe, is about 100,000 people. Nuremberg would have been one of the other big cities that Luther traveled through on the way. Um, but this is a large city, but it's a city of stark contrast. It's very clearly not what it used to be uh, as far as when you look at the state of things, how buildings are, um, how life is. But it really is, and I, um, Heinz Schilling really brings this out well in his biography, Luther is there when it's really filled with some of the artists who will become famous later. Um, I really like that line that Schilling has is that, uh, you know, underneath the scaffolding was all the future glory of Renaissance Rome. And so he's he's there also when there would have been a somewhat active intellectual German co- community there. We don't know. We don't really know for sure who he stayed with. We don't know who all he interacted with that much. But we do know he had a ton of free time because you're basically just waiting to get an audience. Um, so it really is a city of strong contrast at this time. You hit it, Mike, um, a little bit of he's there and he's going to focus on the religious. There would have been plenty to see for a tourist just as today you could go to Rome and you could be interested in history, food, culture, religion, any of those things, and find anything. He's really there to take um, advantage of Rome as the marketplace of salvation. He is going to try to say masses where he can say masses. Um, he waits in a line one place and is unable to say a mass that he wanted to say for his mother. Um, at one point, he said he, later he was disappointed his parents were still alive so that he couldn't help them more with with purgatory. He, he wants to to do things for his grandfather who had who, um, gone, I almost said God, I haven't gone to purgatory in Luther's view at this time. Uh, he really is trying to avail himself of the opportunities, and that's where it comes. He's waiting in line. And so you can understand, too, yes, there's an impiety to it and an irreverence to the, the lack of decorum and how quickly some would say mass. But if you've ever been to Disney World or Cedar Point or somewhere with lines, you also know how people are when they're waiting in line all day. And you can imagine Luther um, not making a show of it, but it becoming apparent that he wants to be reverent and take his time in saying a Mass. Well, if you've been in line for four, five, six, seven hours, uh, there's going to be part of you, I don't care how pious you are, who thinks, uh, come on, buddy, like we all have to say a Mass, be considerate here. Um, and so those things will factor in too. And, but- and he's probably a little bit more pious than the average pilgrim coming through i right. mean would you say yeah i mean and, he's there because he wants to be an observant monk yeah and and like you said there's there's all sorts of things to do in rome you know this is before rome is sacked by charles v i believe in his or not sacked but you know the, he let his soldiers kind of have way with rome a little bit so you know th- there's actual some you know the forum was was more impressive the the ruins were more impressive than what we know today i mean there's a lot of things to do it and and he could have had time he had a month you know he didn't have to spend all of his time doing this religious stuff but he wants to he this is like you said take advantage of this this salvation economy that is in rome and so he he's he's probably a little bit more agitated <laughs> you know than the average um the average priest in town at the time I think something, too, as we think about the journey to Rome, it is interesting. You know, he notices, for instance, um, I believe it's in Nuremberg, there's this mechanical clock and how it works, and it sticks out to him how efficient and nice this mechanical clock was. Um, He talks about the hospitality hospitality of the Swabians, um, the different landscapes he encounters. So it is an exposure for him to... uh, 
the diversity of Europe at the at the time too. Um, he has some good wine, uh, and so there is a part of it. For as much as this is a religious journey, um, we can almost speak of a cultural uh, education that Luther receives on the way too. And as you noted, Mike, when he's later commenting on this, he's doing so through the hindsight of the Reformation having begun through uh, the hostility he's received from the papacy and the church. But really, it seems at the time, there's nothing that's really challenging his faith. He's not going and coming back as someone who uh, has faced a stumbling block by his journey to Rome, but you, you kind of hinted at already, or brought out a little bit at least, he comes back probably a more conservative Catholic than when he left. Uh, he's going to go, and all we have is this note that they must have, at some point it's ruled the Germans have no right to appeal on this case, and he comes back, and they really had no chance of winning their appeal in the first place when they went. Um, but he could have come back and been upset and said, you know what? Rome had all this immorality, and they don't want us to be observant. And they didn't even listen to us. We yeah. didn't even get a hearing. And yet. instead he comes back, and he wants to be a faithful son of the church, and so he submits to Staupitz. He says, you know what? If we didn't win our appeal, um, Staupitz is my superior in the order, and I think we should uh, we should go along with, with his plan. Now, the plan will fail eventually. Nuremberg especially holds out against it, and Staupitz realizes— it, it's kind of a battle. He would lose the war by winning the battle, and so he backs off. Um, and there will be a uh, hostility between Erfurt and Staupitz for quite some time. I believe Staupitz actually develops a really good, like, religious fatherly relationship with Nuremberg after this, even though they had hostility. But with Erfurt, there will, will be hostility there still. Um, Mike, you want to mention just briefly, uh, maybe— and I got a little distracted for a second looking something up, so if you did, I apologize if, if you mentioned it and I missed it. But um, Pilate's Steps, or yeah. what, is, what is the Latin there, the Sancta Scala? Yeah, and... and uh, this so, gets brought up by people a lot because of what Luther says there, but maybe if you can give the background, contextualize it, anything Sure, so there's the steps that uh, apparently Jesus would have um, ascended to Pilate's court, and so you got, like, uber extra points for going there as a pilgrim and doing that maybe going on your knees up the up the up the steps and saying a prayer and I believe the the paternoster the lord's prayer on each step right yeah i think so so you, you, this is this is like I, I i don't know maybe i maybe somebody knows more than i do about this but that this would have been perhaps maybe the greatest pilgrimage thing that he would have done at this time. Maybe saying one a of mass, the bigger yeah. Deals, yeah. Maybe saying a mass here or there, but that this one would mass would at the Lateran churches deal. was a big deal too. Yeah, this was a big, this was a big deal, and so he 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 climbs those steps, and then at the end, and I believe it's from his own mouth that we hear this, his own memory, where he, he ca- says, "Almost all of this is from." table talk comments or yeah. some letters so this is all later in time yeah and so we, there's a little bit of grain of salt but then you know he says you know after thinking about how this is going to be great for his his own salvation and and working for for those in purgatory he says but who knows if it's true kind of that would be my my thought of what he said my translation um and it kind of reminded me of it's really one of those those questions kind of that Hans asked when he got, when Luther got um, ordained his first mass, you know, well, how do you know that this call wasn't from the devil? He asked his son, and you go, what? 
you know, that, that there's just a little chink in the armor there that how do I know that this is really true? Um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily, okay, that's a turning point for him. Um, but looking back, it might, he might have said, you know what? Yeah, how did I know? Just because that was the, the piety of the time, just because the Pope's, who the Pope who wasn't probably even in Rome at the time, he was out somewhere, said so, just because, and how do I don't even know that these are the actual steps? How do, how do I know, right? So kind of a, an epistemological question, how do I know truth? So I, I'm wondering if there's something there where after doing this pilgrimage, he, and here's the big thing, he, after doing this pilgrimage act, there's no comfort. There's no comfort. He still doesn't know. He still is in doubt. And just one more thing in his, his early Catholicism where he's just saying, I don't know for sure, and I don't have any comfort here. And without any comfort, who is this God to me? And it's finally going to be, of course, when he finds the comfort of the gospel that, he, that everything changes. With that, too, it's helpful to keep in mind that, that Luther throughout his life is very transparent, transparent about bouts of doubt that he has. So even with regard to uh, um, sola scriptura and, you know, God's grace in the midst of what he called anfectung, which is, you know, or anfectungian, which is when he would say you could smell the very fires of hell, right? There's going to be times where Luther is, is going to be forthright about doubt or depression, things he wrestles with. So it would make sense of this is, uh, if we if we can make an athletic comparison, this is like a spiritual decathlon that Luther is running in this in this month long stay in Rome. He's trying to pack everything he can in. And if you've ever traveled and you go somewhere and you say, "I've got a week," and my wife sure knows this with traveling with me, I will lay out everything I want to see, and that trip's going to be a failure if I don't see it. And I don't know how many vacations I've almost ruined <clears throat> by having to get everything in. But you get towards the end, right? And and you're tired, you're exhausted, and it would make sense too. He's he has put tremendous effort and time into all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, that someone you have time when you're going up steps on your knees, saying the Lord's prayer on each step. Uh, you know that 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 this would stand out to him later. Was it also something that was probably useful for him to draw on to illustrate something when he's talking to others? Yeah, it makes complete sense that that, um, that, that would be the case, too. And, and once again, just we should reiterate, all of his comments we have about the trip to Rome come after we're well into the Reformation, mm-hmm. not before. If there had been anything at the time that stood out to him, you know, we don't know that he kept any journal that we have. We don't have any record of comments he made to Staupitz or, or notes from the, him teaching in the classroom. Um, so it, it, this is all coming uh, from later in life. So it really does appear that he thinks, even though the appeal didn't succeed, that all in all, the Rome trip was a good trip. He, he, he left thinking, uh, you know, he says in connection to this, wherever God builds a church, the devil builds a tavern next door. Um, so he understands right, that, that the devil's hard at work at Rome, but it doesn't appear he leaves doubting at all the, the primacy of the Roman papacy um, or the, at that time, the, the Roman kind of sacramental penitential system of salvation. Yeah, and, and I don't think that the priest being whatever, does not, you know, 
he was fully aware of Donatism. That 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 didn't affect the the actual what was going on, and so yeah, I think you're right that maybe there's a chink in the armor that there was always there a little sense of of doubt. You know, is this so? Um, but but the authority of the Pope, I don't think, was challenged by his right. by his trip to Rome. I don't I don't think that was at all. In fact, it was more like looking to more into the church. Where is, is this all true? And, and maybe I'll. Talk about pilot stairs just a little bit more, so I can get paint a better picture there. I left out some things, but you know he was climbing pilot stairs on hands and knees, repeating a Pater Nostra for each one and kissing the people that he wanted to get out of purgatory, and kiss, kissing each step for good measure in hope of delivering a soul from from purgatory. Um, the stairs were climbed, uh, the, our fathers were repeated, the steps were kissed. At the top, Luther raised himself and exclaimed, not as legend would have it, the just shall live by faith. He was not yet that far advanced. What he said was, who knows whether it is so. And then, and then certainly this is disconcerting um, to him. And later Luther commented that he had gone to Rome with onions and had returned with garlic, right? I think it's probably fair to say, all right, he's still Catholic and probably a better churchman and maybe like, okay, let's figure this out. But certainly he wasn't just euphoric in his coming back and and he wasn't on fire for Jesus necessarily. Yeah, I, I think end of the day though, um, and, and this goes along with what you're saying, I don't think it contradicts it, is, you know, he, he really goes to Rome as the rebel, right? He's kicking yeah. against the goads of Staupitz, you know, um, his superior. He returns as the obedient son yeah. and submits himself to Staupitz. So I think it's, you know, if we keep that in mind, it's important to remember. Um, but that being said, I think you're absolutely right. It is planting things that on reflection later in life are only going to reinforce the decisions and the um the course in life that he has taken. And, and all of us have those things in life too, where we look back on memories and now we interpret them differently mm-hmm. after things have happened in our life. And we say, see, I should have noticed it already then, or that was already there then. And, and I became more aware of it. We speak of aha moments. Um, so I think there's absolutely no problem with having both of these be true, that he leads a more, he returns a more obedient son to Rome. But there are things that later, when he looks back and reflects on, will confirm him in the route and he's taken and in the theology he's adopted. Yeah, I think, I don't know if we already brought it up in this Winging It series, um, but also uh, a recent episode with uh, Dr. Moldenauer about travel. We've kind of mentioned that, that there's things that happen to you, especially in travel. And this is exactly what it's what what, what it is with Luther, that looking back, he's going to say, oh, yeah, and he puts two and two together. I think that's probably more accurate picture of there's things that people say to you that happen to you. You just need a little bit more wisdom before you can interpret those things. And that and, and Luther's no different. So he returns back. And, and I, I don't know. I'll give you the closing words here. I think we we've we've gone past a little bit of half an hour, but we'll definitely get to the Erfurt Wittenberg kind of thing. And, uh, there, there's a rivalry there and Luther's maybe going to burn his bridges with Erfurt and he's going to back Staupitz and that's going to play a part of that. But I think maybe we could probably save that for the episode on Staupitz. And, uh, so Wade, why don't you kind of close us out with that or something else? Yeah, no. And I think if I can just build up a little bit where we're going, 
in my mind, I what I see us doing, and we might not do this, so don't hold us to it, but maybe recording a session on kind of Luther and the confessional, Luther and confession, how that would have played into his monastic life and how he was influenced, and that's going to incorporate Staupitz somewhat. But then maybe a session on Staupitz himself and his influence on Luther, and that will involve both going backwards and forwards because it's Staupitz who's going to have him get educated more. But Staupitz is going to be important in the confessional. It's going to be he goes to Rome because of Staupitz. So maybe we can kind of do next kind of the role of confession, which plays into Rome as well, and then backtrack to Staupitz. But uh, just something from Schilling, once again, that um, I want to bring out. He says uh, in his biography, which is uh, Martin Luther, Rebel in an Age of Upheaval, which is another good biography. He says, at the beginning of the 16th century, Rome was beginning to exhibit a newfound splendor that in many ways looked back to the classical glory of the Augustan age. The life that Paul, that pulsed right outside Luther's door was remarkable even for Rome. And just something of interest, and this is not anything Luther arranged, but it, it is amazing when you look back. He's in Rome at a time when art and, and uh, cultural life is just flourishing, and then he's going to end up partly as punishment from his fellow monks in Erfurt, fellow friars, in Wittenberg, where you're going to end up with a Lucas Chronic and, um, you know, other brilliant people. Uh, and, and just to say, as someone who looks at history, and I view myself as being a serious historian, but also as one who looks and can't help but see the hand of God, you know, it's just interesting how these things happen in spurts and how Luther... Uh, happen to stumble upon them, you know, beneath that scaffolding is all the stuff that people go to Rome to see now. Um, it's just an interesting side note, perhaps, on this. And I guess with that, I don't have anything more for this session, and we're trying to keep the time consistent. Why don't you close us out with anything you might have, Mike? Sure. I think it's great. I, I You know, it would have been... It would have been nice if Michelangelo and Luther had lunch there and we had a transcript of that. That would have been fun. You a know, pizza these, and a beer, <laughs> like a compromised yeah, Italian-German. The, there's so many of these historic things that, that you know, uh, ships passing in the night, right? And only years later do you really That's understand. Song, yeah? Only years later do you say, wow, that was so close, right? Um, but that is also a contrast to now the glory of Rome being built up and then just this backwards monk. And the irony of the glory of Rome being built up precisely at the time. Right. And so it, it is quite quite an historical moment there. So we're going to continue our series. Um, we may go a little bit off chronologically uh, from time to time, but that's okay. We're going to mostly just kind of go from year to year, and eventually, uh, who knows how long it'll take, but eventually we'll get to, we'll get to Worms, and we'll get to Augsburg, and all those great places as well. Until then, uh, let the bird fly. goes down, get my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking, I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up, another round, I set them up, another round, I set them up, another round, one more round won't get me down. And I said, honey, honey, I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just drinking. I 